If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying. Is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted. Is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye. Come on, come on. You are listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Darnell, I, I know you've been excited about this oh one. Oh boy, Joel, I'm amped up, man. I'm oh, oh I feel like um, like I'm about to go to Wonderland. Well, why, why don't <laughs> yeah. you tell the audience why that is? <laughs> oh, uh, well, um, so we have a special guest um, with you us. You always today. say that, huh? You always Do say I? we have a special guest. Yeah, but well, all of our guests are special because we care about them, right? Fair enough. So we have we have we have um, Doctor Julie uh, Ponce. Did I pronounce Pinesi. it right? Ponce. That's not too Pinesi. bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so th- thank you for coming on, um, Doctor Ponce. So for those of the, for our listeners, um, she's just re- she's an ethics teacher and um, professor, and just recently, in light of um, the, the vaccine mandates, um, she's being forced to vaccinated and choosing not to and rose to prominence yeah <laughs> rose to prominence yeah yeah so um so so uh julie uh for our listeners if i missed anything can you give us more um of a background on you well i was just gonna say you know i should not have rose to prominence for that because <laughs> uh, risen to prominence because i i just did what you know so much of our law and our constitution supports and bioethics principles have been built up over the last several decades to support which is making one's own medical choices and uh and even if there are infringements on that there's got to be an awfully high standard uh, to infringe on those core rights um so so refusing to take an, an investigational I mean, we have to be very clear about that Uh, investigational Mm -hmm. product on pain of losing my job. I mean, that's something that should just be commonplace and and, uh, you know, done by and accepted by many, many more people in Canada now. So this should I should never have gotten on the radar in the first place for doing it. The fact that my actions are anomalous and intolerable, intolerable these days is is is, I think, why we're here and why we're talking. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? And we're, yeah, we're absolutely. So I have a PhD in philosophy and I specialize in ethics and especially uh, medical ethics and a background in ancient philosophy as well. So I wrote my thesis on Aristotle's ethics, his virtue ethics in particular, and I've taught at universities in Canada and the States for the last 20 years and have been at Huron College at Western University for about eight years now. And uh, yeah, the, the vaccine mandate was announced in August, pretty close to the start of term. Uh, I wrote to my uh, president, dean, and chair expressing my concerns about the mandates, generally speaking. So not not stating myself that I wasn't going to comply, but just I was very concerned that the university in general was going to impose this on all students, employees, and faculty. And um uh, I, I got no response until um, much closer to the start of term when teaching assignments really needed to be solidified. And then my dean wrote to me and said, so can I assume from this that you aren't going to comply with the mandate? Uh, and one thing led to another. I made it very clear that I had no plans to comply with any aspect of the mandate, uh, you know, taking the vaccine, uh, revealing vaccination status, uh, masking in the classroom, submitting to rapid testing, none of it. And I received a termination with cause letter pretty shortly after that. 
Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm curious um, on, so in, in my profession, we've always had to do, you know, continuing education and more mm. in the most recent years, they've added sort of a, let's call it a minimal requirement of number of hours for ethics. And mm-hmm. so to some extent, I've seen sort of an elevation of ethics in society. And I'm wondering if you've seen that. Obviously, I'm talking about from you know, my personal experience. But do you see that similar sort of pre-COVID era ethics and, and things of you know, this nature being more? Ooh, yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, the elevation of ethics in society, I think it depends what we mean by ethics and what it would mean to see that kind of elevation. I agree with you that there are probably more, uh, you know, ethics components to, um, you know, continuing education within the professions, within medicine and law. And, uh, and, and there are certainly more, um, you know, ethics classes are requirements at in university programs in a way that they probably weren't a decade ago. So for example, I, I taught business ethics at Western uh, for a number of years, and that course was not a prerequisite for business students until just a couple of years ago, and now it is. So in that sense, there's probably more more of a focus on something ethical in society. Mm. But that's a very different question from whether or not we've become more ethical or whether ethical Mm. questions Mm -hmm. are more at the forefront of our minds, right? I'm not sure about that. (laughs) No, I I think that's a fair point. I know for for myself, you know, when even when I was like, oh, that qualifies as ethics, like, you know, it's sort of very, I want to say overly simplistic ethical topics, especially, you know, with, with regards to the stuff I'm thinking of, it's, you know, continuing education interviews. And so, oh, a segment refers to like treating people fairly and, 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 you know, there's, Mm -hmm. but that I would say I didn't experience sort of like, okay, let's define ethics. Let's define criteria for how we make ethical decisions. It's just sort Mm -hmm. of, um, ethical yeah. type conversations. I mean, there's a very close overlap. If you did sort of a Venn diagram between ethics and the law, there would be a kind of overlap. So where those two th- where those two spheres overlap, there's commonality, right? And so sometimes when you, I'm thinking back to, uh, you know, ethical codes of conduct that bioethicists develop for hospital research ethics boards or something like that, very mm-hmm. often those things just uh, articulate what, the legal parameters for obligation are, right? So ethical principles often just like le- look like legal principles. And sometimes they just look like matters of etiquette. So being kind to people and listening to people and, uh, you know, being open or treating people fairly, th- th- those are uh, sometimes just matters of etiquette. But the really interesting and important moral questions are, so you mentioned treating people fairly. Well, what does it mean to treat people fairly? Mm-hmm. What is fairness? Is it a matter just of equality? And if so, what measures are important for establishing equality? It is, is it important that everybody turns out the same at the end of the day and has, for example, exactly the same income or exactly the same uh, you know, position in society? Or is it equality of opportunity that's important? And, and I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But moral concepts are very loaded ones, very complicated ones. And doing the work of really engaging with those concepts and figuring out as a society moving forward, as a democratic society moving forward, how we are going to approach those questions, how we will define ourselves as moral beings, how we will um, develop assessment standards to figure out, well, when have we succeeded morally and and when are we failing? And then how can we sort of correct for those failings? 
You know, mm-hmm. those are none of those questions or issues are easy or simple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, one of the reasons why I've been so excited uh, about doing this episode, and and I went through all most of your material as much as I could, and I was mm-hmm. it was excellent. It was excellent. Um, and so. I'm I'm fired up for this, <laughs> and I'll make sure to I'll make sure to put a few of those in the show notes page. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely, yeah, yeah. The talks were were really great. Um, and I would just say to the listeners, um, listen to what we got in the show notes. Um, but I guess for me, I I've been looking forward to this interview because, um, we have points where we agree, where I where I agree with you. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm just curious to see like you as you work in um the secular realm. Mm-hmm. And and dealing with your students and what you see, because like I guess for me as a Christian, in uh, Christianity, it is in the business of moral and ethical theory. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to see how you teach moral and ethical theory, um, mm-hmm. but not but not necessarily going to um, a, a biblical approach. So like mm-hmm. for example, one of the basic fundamental questions of ethics is. Um, what is the good or what is um, the common good or ultimate good? And right. That would be the starting point. So what would you say um, the good is? Yeah. Let me, so let me backtrack just a little bit. You know, your point about disagreement, I think is such an interesting one because we live in a society now where I don't think disagreement is barely allowed and it's certainly mm. not valued. Right? <laughs> uh, and then questioning, which is maybe we might think of as being the, uh, the, the preface to disagreement. I mean, how can you know if you disagree with someone unless you start asking them questions about what they believe and then it becomes revealed that maybe they have a different view, right? Um, to begin with, my view is that disagreement, in my view, is a social good. And that's partly because within a democracy where the government is supposed to be representing the people, it's important for the government to know and understand and hear what the opinions of the people are and not just shut down that line of communication and proceed to a kind of top-down flow of information where if if that's what we have in a democracy, well, then we really have no democracy at all because the basic mechanism of society is lost. So all of that, I mean, we could talk more about sort of the political mm-hmm. ideology mm-hmm. behind that view, but all that is to say that I think disagreement is, is it's, it's important to leave space within society for disagreement. And it's important not to refuse to speak to someone just because you do have disagreements or you might have disagreements. So I'm not sure how much we disagreed to begin with, but <laughs> even if we did, let's keep having our conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh my goodness, this question, you know, what is the good or... Um, <laughs> or if there is a good. Yeah, or if there is a good... Um, One thing that has been really surprising to me, and this snuck up on me, and I feel a bit embarrassed to say this because as someone who not only teaches ethics and questions about the good at university, but I teach young people and I talk to them a lot, you know, so I'm a bit surprised that I didn't see the, um, the, the strength of the emergence of this view in society. But it's very clear now that the prevailing ethos of our Canadian society, and quite possibly, you know, to other degrees in other parts of the world, but in Canada, is a kind of collectivism, Mm -hmm. right? And the idea there is that what is good is what's good for the group. And so my good, my personal good is understood in relation to that. 
right? So then each person just becomes a cog in this bigger machine that is barreling forward, that is being fueled, uh, that, that I, its identity uh, is derived from ensuring, ensuring that the good is for the group, not for the individual. And that is, um, I think we should talk about whether or not that's a good ethical view, you know, <laughs> but, but conceptually to begin with, it's a weird view because I think it's, it's easy for people to understand how something could be good or bad for a person. If you talk about physical pain and pleasure, for example, it's easy to understand how, well, if I have a headache, that causes me physical pain and I'm the one who feels physical pain. Uh, if I take some Tylenol and it relieves that physical pain, I'm the one who experiences the relief, right? So it's easy to understand how good can, good and bad can affect a particular person. But when you start thinking about a group, how do you partake of good or the good as the member of a group, especially if, uh, you know, something is deemed good for the group, but it just isn't good for you. You've had to sacrifice something in order to attain that good for the group, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's conceptually a very odd view to me. But then I think, okay, so what would it mean to say this? Like, what would it mean to say that the common good is the ultimate good, that there is nothing better in the world than for the group to which you belong to, to have something good? And, and what does that goodness mean? Are we talking about happiness and pleasure? And so the group is a happier group than another group? Are we talking about something, you know, more Aristotelian like flourishing? And then what would it mean for the group to flourish? So again, I think it's easier for people to understand what it means for themselves to be happy and themselves to flourish. But what it means for those concepts to be applied to a group is, is really weird, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and if we think a bit about this, this idea of you know, the common good, as I said before, it's sort of regarding all individuals as being part of a larger community. And then our whole identity is caught up with the degree to which we serve that community, right? Mm -hmm. And also, our, because it's the group that's ultimately important and not the individual, our own ident individual identities, to the degree that those even exist, have been formed by the group, right? Well, and they're formed as part of that community. And, and I'm assuming a huge part of bioethics, which you have a lot of experience in, um, is in, is focused on the individual and and the individual harms and so like because what yeah. comes to my mind is like I, I you know if i was to worry what point are we willing to accept an individual's harm that is beneficial to the group that is the big question <laughs> uh you are right that so much of um, you know, the, the ethical codes of our professional bodies, so the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Medical Protective Association, uh, and then various, um, I mean, the four principles of bioethics, which are the first one is autonomy, right, or so, a kind of self-governance -gov or self-determination. So uh, autonomy, justice, non-maleficence, and beneficence. But all of these principles, when you watch how they get worked out in terms of uh, bioethics codes for hospitals or how they get worked out in the bioethics literature. Uh, it's mostly about how to respect the rights of individuals. And so if you look, for example, at the end of life literature, most of that is about how do we support an individual's last moments in life in the way that they want, given certain constraining factors like limited 
resources and things like that. But the the primary goal there, right, is to treat people as individuals as much as possible. I think what we're facing now is the this emphasis on on public health and the and the ethics of public health, and there the balancing that needs to happen is between the individual on the one hand and the individual's right to make medical decisions for herself, and then um, the public good on the other hand. And and I think one of the reasons why that's so hard is because they're almost incommensurable uh, things. It's almost you know it's it's like comparing the proverbial apples apples to oranges, right? Uh, because we don't really know how you weigh an individual's good against the good for the collective or the good for the public. Um, and, and my own view is that if there is ever reason to limit individual autonomy, the threshold has to be very high indeed. The reasons have to be very, very good. And I don't think we're seeing anything like those kinds of reasons in society right now. Yeah. Well, I think like there's the reason why we, we started the Sixth Sense Report was because Canadians knew more about American um <laughs> the politi- the Canadian, uh, I mean, the American econ- economy and, and American politics, and they did about um, what was going on here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And so, Canada is very unique. Um, it, and like, you can even look at the policies, and, and we're very socialistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would even argue probably more secular than the U.S. Um, in regards to, for yeah. example, the way we approach um, LGBTQ to mm-hmm. us. Uh, um, ideas. Mm-hmm. And so like me coming from a Christian perspective, we see the, that God is the ultimate good. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the starting point. And so for example, like just the scriptures, Romans three, four says, um, let God be true and every man a liar. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we see here is that regardless of what the collective, every man Things mm-hmm. is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's irrelevant, right? We start with God um, mm-hmm. as separate as the individual, because um, there is one God, and then there's everybody's opinion. And so this is the this is the foundation. Even if you're not even you know you, you if you're not don't believe in that stuff, it, it's okay. You can still um, there's still points of continuity where you're like, well, wait a minute. There's still a premise for saying okay. The individual still has a right to stand alone and have and have the right to have their their, their rights protected, but but we don't have that here um, in Canada, and um, it's not valued. And and so now that you know COVID has hit, we we see what we were really about, kind of like in a yeah. marriage. Oh, that's so nicely put. Yeah, see what we're really about. <laughs> yeah, because see, like in a marriage, um, yeah, everything seems great, but then when tough times hit you really see where you guys were at Mm -hmm. when when difficulty really hits whether it's adultery whether it's um cancer or whatever the case may be a death of a child you see where you guys were really at whether you separate or you stay together we see now this is and, and, and i've said this to um um a friend of mine that i'm i'm kind of glad that we're here at this moment in history i'm kind of glad because it shows where everybody's hand is. Because there was a lot of people posturing like they were some kind of um, moral authority or even uh, know-it-all. Um, mm-hmm. And now you see them and they're like, oh, well, we're for social justice. We're for 
you know, the minority. We're here, we're here for to lift up the minority. And then when they put in the vaccine mandates, those people are quiet. And I was just like, so wait a minute. Not that I minority. Thought, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's right, the so. thing. We're see, as you say, I think we're, this has been this COVID test, if we want to call it. And I don't mean anything scientific by that. I mean like a test <laughs> mm-hmm. of our, our, of our uh, you know, social sensibilities or the test of our morality. I think what it's revealed mm-hmm. is that we are so much more inclined to sliding scales and double standards than maybe we ever would have thought. So uh, I've, I've spoken about this in other interviews, but just the complete dropping out from the bottom of our of our uh, sort of uh, con- social consciousness, the idea of my body, my rights, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm not on the pro-choice side of that debate to be, to be very clear. But I do think that if, if, if our society wants to hold that principle in one context for one issue, then we can't simultaneously erase it away when it's convenient to do so. So either human beings are sovereign over their bodies and that's the kind of Canada we want to build um or they're not you know Mm -hmm. and and i'm very um very concerned very offended that we see something like that that concept that we're sovereign over our bodies trotted out when it's convenient for a certain political ideology uh and and shoved back in the drawer when it doesn't serve and then once again i'm you know that collectivism when it doesn't serve the group the group mentality so i think you're very right that we are uh very um much secular in Canada right now. I think this is also revealed, you know, another difference it's revealing between us and our neighbors to the South is this concept of inalienability. And that, you know, that is so foundational to, you know, the founding of America and sort of the the motivations to to found America in the first place, to have sovereignty, to have independence, um, and the influence of philosophers like John Locke and supporting this idea Mm -hmm. that, you know, there's private property and the fundamental thing that you own is your physical body, right? And you, Mm -hmm. um, and the state should not be able to interfere with that. And, uh, you know, moving forward, we need to decide if we are the kind of country that is Um, You know, it's funny to talk about this unification, collectivist stuff, because there's being a group on the one hand, and I think we're going to talk about some of the problems with collectivism and utilitarianism, but there's being a member of a group in a way that's problematic for the individual, right? That where your rights are at any moment vulnerable to what's best for the group. And I'm, I'm going to sort of argue against that view. But on the other hand, I mean, democracy does require a certain kind of cooperation, right? It requires individuals not just to think of themselves, but to think about how their actions will affect their neighbors and and fellow citizens. Um, But I think a really nice analogy is to think of how a choir works. You know, in in a choir, not every person needs to sing exactly the same part in exactly the same way in order for it to work. And in fact, beauty comes from a kind of discord, a kind of harmonic discord. So you can have a unity 
without having perfect identity. You can allow for diversity and disagreement and a multiplicity of religious views and moral views and you know different vocations and different ways of raising your family. We, you can allow for that in, in a democracy. And if we slide into the view where we expect people to live exactly the same way, believe exactly the same things, we don't have a democracy anymore. We have we we have a kind of we have a socialism as you've said. You know, and we need that's not what our country has been built on. If we're collectively going to make the decision that we're going to become a socialist society now, then, well, all right, we need some referendums. And I guess we need to start electing the people who are going to lead us there, which I think we just did in September. But anyway, (laughs) Uh, but that's, I guess my point is that that's a conscious decision that would need to be made. And what we're seeing now, this expectation that everyone behaves the same and everyone uh, must follow this secular collectivist view, that is not in my mind consistent with what we've built over the last couple hundred years. Now, and it's an embarrassment, to be honest, mm-hmm. I think to people who have given their lives to, to build this country. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, now, earlier, you sort of made a comment regarding, you know, a very high standard to, to let's say, violating another person's rights or, or justifying mm-hmm. it. And, and I wanted to bring that back to, you know, with, you use the term inalienable, which you didn't say rights, but I think about inalienable rights with respect to the U.S., and in Canada, we don't have that same principle built That's in. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I wonder, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking about, you know, collectivism and unity sort of being at, at uh, you know, contrast or, or conflicting ideas a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the, the concept of inalienable rights somewhat serves as a means to protect the ability to maintain unity because the inalienable rights protects the individual. Mm-hmm. And and I'm wondering if, you know, maybe COVID has made you maybe question that way that the U.S. or sorry, the Canadian Constitution builds in this sort of um, competing rights uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to the inalienable <laughs> rights concept. Well, I've certainly learned a lot more about how, um, you know, our core rights are thought of in Canadian law and how the Yolks test test works and, you know, uh, what effect an emergency, a declaration of an emergency has on the court's willingness and ability to protect individual rights. I've certainly learned an awful lot more about that, but I think you're very right that we don't have the same concept, the same, we don't think that rights are inalienable in Canada. We think that they're important. There's this core set of rights. And I think, uh, you know, sovereignty over one's body is one of them. But if it can be shown that protecting those individual rights comes at, comes at, you know risks the group, then our courts seem to be quite willing to disregard and infringe on those those court rights. You know, I um I wrote a, a declaration, which is the American term or in Canada an affidavit for a legal case a little while ago. And one of the things I was tasked with doing is answering the question, um, you know, when would vaccine mandates be justified. And I started out, and I think we can set, it doesn't have to be about vaccines, but you know, we're thinking about anything that severely sort of limits, right? A person's- Yeah, this fits uh, our context right now, yeah. Compels. Yeah. So when I started out doing that, I thought, okay, well, my view is that clearly the threshold would have to be very high and then we have to outline or identify some some criteria to, to show when we've reached that threshold to limit rights. And after I wrote the whole thing, uh, I, I came to the view that it's not clear to me that vaccine mandates are ever justified uh, because what you're giving up in order to impose them is, you know, you're giving up your right not 
to undergo coercive medical intervention. Mm. And that's the cost. You know, mm. we can we can say that one thing that hangs if we've got kind of a scale and we're going to put the benefits of vaccine mandates on the one hand and the costs on the other hand, arguably what might be on the benefit side is, uh, you know, in, in improving, you know, antibodies in the pop, raising the level of antibodies in the population and protecting people from sickness or death, arguably, though, I don't think that in this case, we're, we're going to see that happen. But if the mandates do achieve those things, what you have to give up in order to achieve them is so great, right? What you're giving up is a person's right to decide what enters his or her body. You know, and I um, I waffle back and forth and whether or not it's appropriate to draw this analogy, but we have decided in the Western world and certainly in Canada as a democracy that having something enter your body against your will is an assault. Mm, yikes. Right? <laughs> and so we have, to, I think, to understand vaccine mandates, they are coercive immunization strategies. And because if in the app, you know, the only reason for imposing a mandate is because if you didn't, people wouldn't voluntarily mm -hmm. agree to submit to vaccination. So you impose them because you're aware that this voluntariness would kick in among at least certain people in the population, right? A certain percentage of the population, and they would not voluntarily consent. So you impose the mandate in order to try to manipulate or alter or coerce their behavior. So we, you know, I mean, I think that's a, that's an interesting question is you might get the good, you might get, you might arguably get the epidemiological advantage of addressing a virus in society. But what you're giving up is something very fundamental, morally and politically speaking. And it's mm -hmm. not clear to me we want to be the kind of society, we want to create the kind of world for our children in which those are the kinds of things that can very easily be given up and, and demanded of us by any government at any time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I love about studying ethics is that um, there are ideas that can be tested. And mm -hmm. a lot of times is... A, like the way, like I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I came to to faith like in my mid twenties, mm. and so so prior to that, I was relativistic in my, in my morals. On, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, why wouldn't you be right? Why wouldn't you be? Right, so it's the alternative, right? Because so. right, my whole life, I, there was no such thing as good and bad. Everything was relative, and mm. so what was unique. Um, in me coming to the faith and just studying ethics was that um, you can you can test out moral theories, and I think that was helpful to push your um, your thinking to its logical conclusion. And mm -hmm. a lot of times, is we're not around people, um, or if you're not in circles or you're not in cultures that push moral theory to its logical conclusion, we just kind of take it as as on on its surface and leave it at that. But the point I'm making is that um, it's very important for us to say, okay, well, why do you believe that? And let's have a discussion or a debate on, let's push it to its furthest conclusion and see where it gets you. But of course, um, that's the scary part, but also that's the fun part because wherever it takes you, wherever it takes you, you know, you have to live with the consequences. And so when I, when I think about the moral theory of utilitarianism, and for our listeners who aren't sure what that is, it's, it's a moral theory that focuses on the results or consequences of our actions and treats intentions as irrelevant. 
So utilitarianism teaches that action should be measured in terms of the happiness or pleasure that they produce. Yes. And what's really uh, the concerning implication of utilitarianism for what we're talking about today is that it's not the happiness for each individual person. It's the aggregate happiness, mm. right? So if it could be shown that you could produce an enormous amount of happiness for the group by sacrificing a very small number of members, then unless you build some kind of consideration or, or principle or rule into... Like rights? Uh, <laughs> Well, this is, you know, this is an interesting question. So uh, a lot of contemporary utilitarians are what we would call rule utilitarians. And that just means that they've decided that there are certain rules or principles that you have to follow as a utilitarian that you should respect always because it's better for the group to respect those 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 principles or those um those rules, right? Like Jeremy Bentham, for example, who was uh, the, really the founder of modern utilitarianism, he was very interested in personal freedom. And I think that's something that's not noticed very much. Uh, but he was interested in, you know, freedom of expression and uh, women's rights, animal, animal rights, uh, the right to divorce, the abolition of slavery. And so utilitarians of the Benthamite ilk would say, well, we can only achieve as much aggregate happiness as possible if we respect women's rights, for example, or if we respect uh, the right of people not to be owned as slaves, you know. But when you take that too far, so if you build too many rights into your utilitarian system, it stops looking like utilitarianism, right? Mm. <laughs> because then what becomes important is not that you're producing an aggregate amount of happiness for the group, but that you are forming a group in which the rights of individuals are most respected. So there's, I think, an interesting and a fine line there between uh, rule utilitarians, which I think Bentham is, and deontologists, which are, um, so deontology was founded by a philosopher named Immanuel Kant. And his idea is that we have a duty to perform certain actions and refrain from performing other actions. And so he's not interested in consequences or, or happiness that, that can, you know, attach to the group. He's interested in, he's, you know, he's not concerned about what kind of consequences. There are certain things that you're allowed to do, certain things you're required to do and certain things which are strictly impermissible. So um, the thing that's interesting about these rural utilitarians is they clearly care for rights right? They clearly recognize the value of having a, a personal sphere of freedom. There are some parts of our lives that should never be sacrificed for the group. But if that's true, then why make it so limited, right? Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. certainly if there is some sphere uh, that's worth protecting, the, you know, the individual private sphere, then sovereignty over one's own body should surely be part of that sphere and not outside of it, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think in light of where we are in history because of COVID, I hope I hope going forward um, that we would I guess recalibrate the way we um, do teaching um, and teaching of ethics because when you really look at it, like these are really deep ideas, mm. but they're not so deep that children can't grasp them. Yeah. And that, and that these aren't ideas that we don't deal with every day. But because we were unprepared <laughs> for what came with, with COVID, um, you know, <laughs> we're reaping the benefits of it. But would you say, like, 
would you like at you as a professor do you think we should be learning ethics earlier and as a oh and making goodness. it mandatory well yes although i do i am i would be concerned about how that would be taken up by our current government mm. and you know educational institutions so by teaching ethics i mean i've seen some of the material that's being taught in schools at the high school and elementary level surrounding the, the covid stuff and um and it's appalling i mean i, I would not develop an ethics curriculum that looks anything like that. But you make a really good point that, I mean, though the discussion we've been having today is pretty high level, um, moral concepts are pretty basic. The technicalities of them are complex, but the essence or the core of them isn't. And something that I think children can understand is they understand how their actions make other people feel and why they would or wouldn't want to feel that way. And that's basically empathy, right? So little children can be taught, well, you don't want to push your friend because she'll fall down and that will hurt. And you don't like when that happens, right? So you shouldn't do that. I mean, that's kind of a basic uh, you know, concept of empathy. And if we can learn empathy and regard for other people, and, and that requires a certain kind of imagination. So imagining what it would be like to be in their place, imagining the hardship someone faced who's grown up poor, uh, or who's grown up with parents who weren't maybe as good as yours or something. I mean, all of those acts of imagination, I think, are deeply important to moral education. Mm. Yeah, no, no, totally. And I think that's why, but part of it too is in, as, as a teacher as well, um, one thing I've observed about, not just in the classroom, but out the classroom and dealing with children as a whole, is that children ask really good questions. Yes. And yes. deep, deep questions where, as you know, where that technically they ask questions that are pol politically incorrect. Thank goodness. Right? <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> they, they, they do. And, and this is why I'm, I'm always excited about education because, because kids are so smart and they're sponges and they ask the hard questions. Um, when you get to college or university, everybody knows what questions not to ask, right? I know. So, I was just thinking, <laughs> as you're talking, I'm thinking, what happens by the time I get them in university? Because they've lost yeah. all of that. Oh, you know? yeah. It's all, it's all um, gone. But if, if we can make a free um, a, 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 um, a learning environment that's free um, to think and free to fail, um, we can ask tough questions. So, for example, um, you know, kids would be like, okay, well, what is... Again, we of course we talk about what is the good or what is where does good come from? Why is murder wrong? Why is stealing wrong? Um, where, what makes when we look at history? Why was um, the enslavement of black people a good thing? Mm. Why was the extermination <laughs> of the Jews a good thing? We're like, wait, mm. what do you mean? Like, yeah, but it was a good thing. Like, killing Jews was a good thing. Like, enslaving black people was a good thing. Well, why? Mm. Well, because the collective thought it was you know now, i saw yeah. sorry you know you go ahead, yeah. go ahead no no go ahead go ahead go ahead well i was just gonna say i was in a meeting yesterday and there was uh an image on the wall and it was from i think maybe 1938 germany and the, this is a really well-known photograph you might know this but there's uh maybe a hundred Nazi soldiers standing in a group, and they're all kind of pointed uh, to, to the side, and they're all, uh, you know, they all have their arm raised out in front of them. And there's one guy who doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, mm. and I think we, <laughs> if you conducted a thought experiment in class, 
whether it's in high school or university, maybe not so much in elementary school, I'm not sure, but high school or university, and you ask them, which of these guys would you be? I don't know what the percentage would be, but you'd have a really high percentage, even now, I think, who would say, oh, I'd be the guy who wouldn't raise my hand. I would be the guy who my conscience would kick in and I would not support these Nazi principles. What I think we're seeing is, you know, you talked earlier about um, the, it's great with ethics when you can bring it to the real world and test these principles. What we're seeing mm-hmm. with this COVID situation is that, I don't know, 82% of us, I'm not sure where we're at or how you measure it, but a very, very high percentage of us are the guys with their hand outstretched mm-hmm. honoring Hitler, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, what's so important in society is that we that that it's a live option to us to think about questioning the herd and to consider going against the herd it's not i mean challenging the common norm it's not it's not necessarily bad if you agree with the group i don't think it's not necessarily bad the group might have the right answer but mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have the right answer Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. And that's why this is one of the problems with relativism, in my view, which is that if relativism, especially cultural relativism, if, if that is the right moral theory, then there is no room for dissenters or questioners within the group, because the right answer is always just going to be whatever the group happens to think is right. So you can't say, well, hold on here a minute. I don't know if persecuting the blacks was really a good idea. They'll say, well, it's a good idea because we did it. And there's no, mm-hmm. there's no room for revisability or, or questioning. You know? And that's where I think we've gotten to in society. And that is a very um, humbling, horrifying realization to be left with, that we are cultural relativism and collectivism playing out in a global laboratory. Yeah. Uh, well, as a, um, so I, I did my professor in, in history. And so I, I always look at things from, I, I just love history and looking at, I love the fact that we're a part of history and, and looking back in retrospect. But one of my issues is that I find that when we don't study history and, and there's economic and there's ethical theories mm-hmm. within, within history. So for example, like the examples I gave about um, slavery and whether it's apartheid or um, the mm-hmm. Holocaust, uh, we'll look back and we'll presentize the past and we'll have like this chronological snobbery where we'll say <laughs> we're, be- we're, we're, we're better than those guys. But yeah. the point I'm making is that, you know, sometimes you have to put yourself in other people's shoes. And so, okay, well, why, didn't, why did everybody have their hands raised um, for Nazi Germany? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, because that's what the collective did and that's what made what was right. And so when we look at ourselves today and we say, okay, so why are you right in light of your views on vaccine mandates? Well, because of the same reason why slavery was okay or why the Mm -hmm. Holocaust was okay, because Mm -hmm. the collective stood for it. Mm -hmm. That's what the collective was saying. But the point I'm making is that um, there are more nuances, of course, to, um, for example, the question is why Sorry, I was just going to say, we don't allow nuance anymore. Did you not get a memo? There should have been a mailing coming out from the federal government. We don't do nuance. It's out of yeah. style. But, Sorry. but see, but, but no, no, hold on. But the letter is coming. Darno, the letter is coming from the Ministry of Truth. Let's not forget. <laughs> yeah, but see, but but there's see, a monopoly this, on that now, you know, truth. Yeah. Right, right. But see, as as, as a teacher, as as an educator, um, if I'm teaching these, these as a history teacher, if I'm teaching these ideas, I'm going to say to my students, okay, how 
how were the blacks freed? What ideas liberated them? Mm. What ideas, um, you know, eventually, you know, ended the Holocaust? What ideas ended apartheid? Hmm. What what moral ideas over were able to overthrow these these huge institutions? And we've lost that because hmm. we're not we're not digging deep enough um, ethically in our classes and it's not multi-layered like we're not we're just looking at ethics and ethics we're not looking at ethics and history ethics and business ethics ethics and sports hmm. you didn't in, in your one of your interviews you talked about um i can't remember the the the, the guy's name but you talked about the ash conformity um experiment yeah yeah right and then and he talked about the pressure is so much looking at that um that it rewrites your memory and um your perception um because you want to follow the crowd yeah, and it's so interesting, you know, I think morality doesn't I've said this before, but morality doesn't require perfection. Surely as imperfect beings, we're we're going to falter, we're going to right. individually and collectively take missteps. But what it, morality does require is diligence and attentiveness and always being willing to go back to the drawing board and and being very perceptive and open and aware of how our actions and decisions are affecting other people and honoring our commitments of the past you know you mentioned the holocaust but if we look at how uh you know your your question what moral ideas got us out of these human atrocities i'm not sure but i think that's a phenomenal question to be asking and we should i'd like to see that on the front page of the national post tomorrow morning i mean mm. i think these are the questions we should be talking about but uh if and teaching about <laughs> and teach yeah exactly exactly and and not being afraid of the open-ended question not being afraid yep. to drop a question and let it hang for a while and let people sit with the uncomfortable totally push it to its yeah. furthest conclusion and embrace that uncomfortableness and embrace the uncertainty and that's okay and that's part of you know but what i was going to say is that um if you look at how the final solution turned out and then we had the nuremberg trials and then we developed the nuremberg code after that and we kind of dr ryan cole who's the pathologist from the states has been so eloquent about this and he said that you know the nuremberg code was really a promise to humanity it was a recognition and then a promise right it was a recognition that we took a misstep there and we're not going to do this again. We're going to document, we're going to codify our commitment, not just to Europeans or North Americans, we're going to codify our commitment to humanity going forward, that we won't make that mistake again. We're never going to infringe on people's right to make medical choices for themselves. We're never going to experiment on them against their will. Um, you know, and of course, as I said before, we're imperfect and we'll make many other mistakes, but goodness me, within a 60 year span, let's not make the same mistake again. And here we are d doing it. And, and, you know, it would kind of be one thing if we said, well, I think we got the Nuremberg Code wrong. And actually, it's morally permissible to experiment on people against their will. And if we were really honest about that, and if we, you know, were confronting that and, and decided to go in a different direction, I, I, I'm not saying I could get behind that, but that would be one thing. We have a complete kind of myopia with respect, you know, a complete blindness with respect to that final chapter. Uh, in that story of that massive crime against humanity in the 30s and 40s in, in Europe. You know, we've completely forgotten our collective role in it, how we came out of it, how we promised not to err in that way again. And that is probably beyond anything else that's happening right now, just chillingly haunting to me. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, what I perceive 
very much the you know Nuremberg Code representing is is aligning with inalienable rights and the concept of negative rights. And you know, as we were talking about you know utilitarianism and the idea of like collectivism versus individualism, you know, I'm I'm curious your thoughts on let's call it the parallels a little or or yeah the parallels of the ideas that are used by eugenics or, or people that are eugenicists. And and the reason I bring that up is like at one point does you know the the idea of positive rights sort of become a justification for things that you know lead to the Holocaust. And, and so I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, well, because I think so much of the idea of negative rights is completely ignored. People fail totally to understand rights as a whole. And we say negative rights and we're pointing towards like, you know, internet as a right, as opposed to really understanding what rights are. Yeah. So uh, it's really interesting and important, I think, and goodness, if my students were listening, they would say, oh, there she goes again. But it's important <laughs> to understand where, where words come from. You know, and eugenics comes from two Greek words. Uh, U, sort of the prefix means well or good. And then genos, this, the, the, the second part, uh, has something to do with, with breeding or, or birth, right? Or begetting. So eugenics really means, you know, good birth or or being well-born or coming from good stock or something like that. So, And then the eugenics movement is about creating people who are more well-born than we have been or more well-born, creating a better sort of stock, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are a eugenicist, there's no... Uh, if you are a eugenicist and you think that what's ultimately good is to create a certain kind of human race that's consistent with the image you have in your mind, whether that's an Aryan race, whether that's a, um, you know, a race that's more artificially intelligent, wh whatever it is. A vaccinated right? race. Yeah, vaccinated race, totally. So if you are a eugenicist, then um, of course there are positive rights. You know, I mean, there, there would be, the positive rights for a eugenicist would be those rights people have that that serve the eugenics project. So for example, we would have a positive right to undergo certain forms of genetic manipulation in order to help create that, that good stock, right? So I think it depends what you start with. If you start with, if, if your fundamental overarching principle is a eugenics principle, then your understanding of rights, positive or negative, is derivative to that, right? And that's why, that's why, by the way, we shouldn't be eugenicists. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. I was, just, I was making sure. I was just like, okay. Yeah, right. write that down somewhere. Make a note. <laughs> Put it on your bumper on your car, whatever, you know. Um, but of course, any kind of rights, positive or negative, are, 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 you know, have the potential to threaten that eugenics project. And you mentioned, you know, a vaccinated race. We are, I mean, if people, if you're listening and you think that COVID is a blip and we're going to get over this and go back to life as normal, that is not how I see it, to be honest. We are, mm -hmm. the decisions we're making now, we are not just allowing for COVID vaccine mandates and COVID vaccine policies. We are setting a precedent that will allow for um, any vaccine mandate in the future. Uh, the complete digitization of our medical records. And I think um, entrance rights into society, whether that means you know physical social spaces or 
the rights to participate, to run for office, to vote, uh, to write op- opinion pieces in a newspaper, you know, whatever it is. Um, if those are all tied to our vaccination status, then we're very clearly molding a human race that is a vaccinated race. And we have to think very clearly and carefully about the good and the bad things that can come from that and make a conscious decision about whether we want to enter that territory. And of course, I think there are a lot of reasons why we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, and I would argue we've already sort of become a pharmaceutically uh, dependent race, which personally is sort of not how I operate. Um, and, yeah. and you know, culturally, we're very much there, especially North America. You know, I've heard lots of stats around North America, more so U.S., spends the most amount of money, but seems to be the sickest um, in terms of, you know, healthcare and pharmaceuticals. You know, it's so interesting you bring that up because we have had for a number of years, decades now, running this this focus on naturalism, right? We have naturopathic doctors, we have dietitians, we have, I mean, there are any number of these people you can follow on social media and Instagram. And mm-hmm. we have this sort of this heavy, uh, non-pharmaceuticalized natural approach to, to healthcare on the one hand, but then on the other hand, and definitely what's coming from our government and I think is motivated by a kind of uh, you know, regulatory capture and the heavy hand of the pharmaceutical industry is that there's this this ethos that our lives are better the more we can artificially manipulate the you know the kind of biological lives we already have. So why wouldn't it? You know, I was in um I was in a hotel on Sunday night and therefore uh, got to see the ads that are on cable TV. I never mm-hmm. see ads because I don't have TV at home. So most of the ads were, were pharmaceutical ads. And they're all about a kind of enhancement. You know, some of them are for some very specific medical diseases like, um, you know, Lipitor for blood clotting and things like that. But, um, but a lot of them were just about slight psychological enhancements. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, in the ads, they list all of the side effects that you could experience. In the low voice. In the low voice. Exactly. But somebody's always dancing through the daisy field while it's on. So, you know, there's this cognitive <laughs> dissonance between what you're hearing and what you're seeing. And, you know, so I think I think we need to <laughs> we need to realize, right, that that where we're going is not where we've been. And it's not even where we are right now. And there's a very I think a slippery slope when we enter this arena of, uh, you know, pharmacalized, if I can put it that way, approaches not just to changing our biology, but potentially changing human identity in our minds. Because if we're starting to talk about drugs that treat depression and drugs that enhance happiness and drugs that reduce anxiety and drugs that helped you to fall asleep at night and get you up in the morning, you know, there are very interesting questions there about how it's changing who we are. And um, if we're going to enter a society where not only we're allowing those kinds of changes, but we're granting people access to society on the basis of accepting and approving and taking them on, then that's a very different society indeed. Mm -hmm. But well, you know, that's great because yes, you do have a background in medical ethics and, and I'd love to continue this conversation. Yes, on let's, another let's, another yeah. yeah another another day. Um, this is this is wonderful. Uh, thank you for being gracious with your time. Um, now before um, we go, can you let the um, audience know where they can get in contact with you and let us know about what you've been doing with the Democracy Fund? 
Absolutely. So I work now with the Democracy Fund, which is a not-for-profit civil liberties organization in Canada. It's 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 the largest uh, now. I think we've um, seen some of our existing civil liberties associations not quite uh, defend and embrace civil liberties as much as they should. And so the Democracy Fund is working very hard to do that. I am the pandemic ethics scholar, um, and I'm focusing on sort of our our. Uh, education arm. So uh, educating with respect to uh, pandemic ethics, but not just in a formal sense, but in society generally. So giving talks and I'm writing a book and just to try to bring some of the things that we've been talking about today into uh, prominence in, in public discourse. And I have a Twitter page. It's Dr. Julie Panessi. Um, you can go to the democracyfund.ca website and you can find me there. Um, and we also have a YouTube channel, the Democracy Fund, so you can find a number of uh, talks and speeches that have been given there. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to, to put that in the, the show notes page and make yeah. it easy for everyone. Yeah. Well, thanks yeah. for a great talk today. I hope we continue another day. Oh, yes, yeah, no, thank definitely, you. definitely. Thank you. And, and I'm sure our, our listeners um, were blessed by it. <laughs> but you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media. 